Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. Hey everyone, my name is Destiny, and I'm a mental health therapist in Atlanta, Georgia. I love learning about things like motivation and what drives us to make changes in our lives. It's so much more complex than choosing a goal and trying to stick to it. I know I spent several years just trying to do everything right from my diet to exercise, supplements, you name it. And I kept thinking that my pain was all in my head. I needed to live a perfect lifestyle to obtain optimum health. Um, But I constantly fell short of that ideal and my inner critic led to behaviors that really didn't align with the life I was trying to live. But through acceptance and commitment therapy and kind of practicing that with myself, I came to learn that my perfect lifestyle could actually be attained. It just didn't look how I thought it was going to look. My new lifestyle allowed for, really required, that I go with the flow, allow for ups and downs, and following the principle of the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule states that we gain 80% of our results from 20% of our effort. This means that we do the things that are truly important to us and stop doing the things that don't actually matter. It definitely took some time figuring out what that 80-20 looked like for me, and I know it will probably take some time for you too. So my hope is that this podcast will be just one piece in your journey to figuring that out. To get us started, I've had my good friend and assistant, Rachel Hopkins, interview me so that you, the listener, can gain a better sense of what I'm offering here and what you can expect to hear in the future. Enjoy. If you were to define your work to individuals that are not either dealing with chronic illness or working in the chronic illness sphere, how would you define your work? Yeah, um, so probably starting with the definition of chronic illness itself, which is any illness or health problem that's been happening for three or more months. Um, However, most of the clients that I work with on a therapeutic level Um, they've been dealing with health issues, honestly, their whole life. Uh, And usually they're things that people don't usually recognize as a health issue, like um, maybe chronic migraines. Uh, So migraines that they get consistently over a long period of time or uh, stomach issues. That's a really big one that a lot of clients have uh, that is Mm -hmm. just really so normalized. Um, it's like, oh, you have a stomach ache. Um, but when you've been having a stomach ache since you were three years old, like you can remember it from very, very small, uh, you know, from your first memories, um, that is an issue. It's not normal and something, something can and should be done about that. And so I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't do anything on that side of things, although I refer out to functional medicine doctors whenever I can. Um, and a lot of times, um, clients will get some, some level of help there, but the work that we do in the therapy room is more about learning how to listen to your body. Like, what does that actually mean? Um, 
And just to give an example, it, it looks like if I'm having an experience in my body, if I'm having some kind of sensation, I might pause and actually pay attention to that sensation rather than ignoring it and moving on about my day, which is what most of us do. I found that um, when we start to listen to our body, sometimes it feels a little bit worse at first because it's like we've been denying our body this experience for most of our life probably. Um, so when you give your body the space to go ahead and feel what's happening inside, <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit more heavy or, or severe. It might be a little bit more heavy or severe. Um, it doesn't always have to be, but can be for sure. Um, and through that, like, that's the part that I, I work with as a therapist is how do we help you deal with the heaviness? How do we help you then move through it so that it doesn't re remain heavy. Um, that's kind of what the premise of working with a therapist is when, um, when you're specifically going to a therapist for dealing with chronic health conditions. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that it's something that, you, you know, I'm not in the chronic illness sphere and I'm, you know, but it's, we're not taught to sit with our discomfort and I have to imagine not only isn't it incredibly difficult but invaluable if it's something that you're kind of forced to work through that being said what modalities and techniques would you incorporate with your clients as you're teaching them to work through or sit through or process how they're feeling yeah um so I started off training in acceptance and commitment therapy when I was an undergrad um, so I've been studying that modality for about a decade now. And it's, it's a really great starting point because sometimes some of this mind body work, especially if you've never done any of it before, it can be incredibly overwhelming. You have to take your time and go slowly. Um, and so acceptance and commitment therapy, which I refer to as ACT, um, that's, you know, it's, it's ACT uh, for short, but we call it ACT in the field. ACT can be as psychoanalytic as you want it to be, or it can be like used by coaches. Like it can be really, really in-depth and really, um, you know, something that a therapist is using on a really deep level, but it also can be used on a really superficial level as well. And that's a great mix to have when you're working with someone who, again, has never really gone through a lot of the mind-body connection type exercises. So depending on the client, sometimes we start there and we stay there for a long time. And what that looks like is what's important to you in your life? What values do you hold? You know, what, um, if you are, if you are a person who values, um, having a family, then everything you do in your life might start to revolve around. How do I get there within act? We focus a lot on values and we focus a lot on what's important to you. Um, but once you start to get into that mindfulness side of things, then we use those body sensations to really figure out, okay, what is important to me? Sometimes it's really easy to say that something is important to us because that's what we were raised to believe was important to us, that everybody should find this particular thing um, important. Like, kindness who would who would say kindness is not important we probably all would just check off yes that's important however 
when you're really taking an in-depth look at your particular values, you might find that kindness falls maybe five or six on that list. And that um, being honest is at your top most value. And sometimes that doesn't mean being kind. That's okay. That's something that we explore and we look at. And then um, the, the body work comes in. And on a, so if you're talking about values, the body work comes in in a way that, again, how do you know what your values are? How does it feel in your body when you start to practice them? So if you go out and you try this thing, you try being honest when you're used to being kind, how do you feel in your body? At first, you know, that discomfort might make you feel like, oh, this is really, really wrong, but it might just be discomfort because you're not used to it. So again, that's why this is such a long process sometimes because it's not cut and dry. It's not like, oh, there's tension in my body. That means this is wrong. It doesn't always mean that. Um, so we start off on a, on a more cognitive level, meaning talking about what thoughts you have and beliefs you have and things like that. But I think the main thing to remember is that when we're talking about thoughts, beliefs, sensations, emotions, all of these things, the most important thing to remember is that we're not judging them. And that's where mindfulness really helps a lot because it helps you remove your judgment, helps you remove your criticism so that you can see things more clearly. Whereas other modalities try to sometimes make you believe that your thoughts are wrong or if, well, if you think this way, your life will be better. You know, if you stop thinking that everyone's against you, then you're going to have better relationships. Well, what if you have a lot of experiences in your life where people were against you? Maybe you grew up in an environment where no one rooted for you. And in fact, everyone in your family kind of, kind of holds each other down or you're in a work environment where it's very competitive and no one's trying to help you. They're trying to, again, you know, they're trying to maybe not keep you down, but in a way, yes, because uh, it's the only way that they feel they can make it up that ladder. So we're not in acceptance and commitment therapy and in, in somatic experiencing, which is another modality that I'm um, partly trained in. The main thing to remember is that we're not judging our experiences. How this helps with chronic illness is, well, there's many layers here, um, but because we live in a society that is mainly focused on how can we produce more, make more money, um, do more, be more, it's always about doing and being. When you have a chronic illness, a lot of times what you need is rest. What you need is to produce less. Um, we need to be more creative and we need to give more time and energy to being, um, to focusing on the joys of life just for the sake of it being joyful rather than, oh, how do I make this into a career or make money out of this? And so again, the, the coming back to not judging and not criticizing yourself and others, learning that skill, it really is a skill. Um, you can tell yourself all day, like, don't be so judgmental, but it's not as easy as that. It's not just as simple as knowing it. You have to really practice it. Um, and through that, we become more compassionate towards ourselves. Um, and that has many different benefits. It can make us more productive, um, but that shouldn't always be the main goal is like, how do I rest so I can do more? It's also how do I rest so that I can live a life that I truly want to live? 
sometimes rest is about making us kinder people or um, it makes us uh, enjoy life more, which then has an, an array of other benefits. It, it looks different for everyone. The main point to remember is that we're really working here on not criticizing ourselves and how do we find this balance between letting go and doing more in a way that really works for you. And that it really is just a process and figuring that all out. Yeah, it sounds like as a practitioner, if I were to sort of break down the three, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the three pillars of what your, what a session might look like, you know, with you, I would start with, you know, values identification as something that you mentioned, and then sort of going into JOMO, like the joy of missing out and how you can still incorporate your values into doing what feels best for you in your body. And then the third element being combining the two in a way that it's finding a level of productivity, productivity without judging yourself, like learning to be omniscient and looking at your actions and your thoughts and your values without placing judgment. Am I right in that? Yeah, for sure. All of that is, um, it's spot on. That's exactly what we're working towards. And I know that when we just, when we just say that and kind of, um, summarize it, it it can feel really vague, but that's why the, you know, but if you find yourself drawn to that kind of a summary, like, okay, this sounds interesting, then it's important that you get in there and find a therapist who can really help you do this work. Um, Because it's only going to be through experience that you start to realize how this truly benefits your life. So how do you guide individuals if we were to look at discovering what their values are? How would you guide into individuals into discovering and labeling what their values are? What would be sort of the steps in that if you had to give them steps? Yeah, sometimes it's a really, really simple start, such as, you know, I have a list of values on a piece of paper and we go through and we make, um, not make, (laughs) we go through and we encourage a client to highlight all of the things that are important to them. Now, this exercise um, is incredibly difficult sometimes because re- values all sound really positive. You know, value examples of values, kindness, compassion, dedication, perseverance. All of these things are things that no one would ever want to say, well, I don't really value perseverance. And so what we do is we say, okay, you can only highlight 20 on this list of 50. So it really starts to it's not about being right or wrong. Like you might go back after, so we do this several times and we start off with like highlighting 20 and then we may say, okay, take out 10 of them. What, what are your next highest 10 values from the ones that you've uh, highlighted? You might go through this whole process and realize that something you didn't even highlight on that first round is your most important value. The point of this exercise is not to get it right. The first time, the point of this exercise is to start thinking critically about how you show up in the world. If that's how you like showing up in the world. And if it's not, how would you rather show up in the world? So maybe, maybe I actually have a negative connotation with perseverance because I watched, you know, my parents um, work 80 hour weeks and I always promised myself I was never going to be an overworker as an example. Um, you might actually have a really negative connotation with that word, dedication, perseverance. Um, But you might realize throughout the process of therapy later on that that word actually does drive you in your life. Um, And there's a way to do that in a healthy way that doesn't 
then resemble working 80 hour work weeks. So um, that's just one really simple way, but again, it sounds really simple. Uh, and then it leads us into this kind of more in-depth process. I don't think it sounds, you know, so to me, you know, not being a practitioner of it, um, it doesn't sound simple in a way that's like, oh, this is so simple. It sounds, it sounds streamlined, but also very well thought out in a way that makes sense, you know? So sometimes simple, you know, I don't, I don't want you to think it's like a negative thing at all. I think it's, it's amazing that, you know, just what you described your clients or, you know, whoever clients that practice this sort of modality could have that aha moment. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people you work with sort of potentially take a step back sometimes down around, down along the lines and think, oh my gosh, this is something that I valued that I didn't even have a word for. Have you ever had an experience like that? Yeah, that definitely happens. Um, and one of the things that we do, there's an exercise called just trying on a value. And so that's, that's the homework is like this week, go home and try on, if you've chosen this word perseverance, let's say, just go home and, and look at all the ways in which you can try to incorporate that into your day to day. And at the end, you know, next week, when you come back in, we're going to process that and see how that felt and see, is this a word that resonates with you? And what, what are your beliefs around it? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? How did it make you feel in your body? Um, and so that's how we kind of get, get to that moment of like, okay, yeah, perseverance is something that I do really like incorporating in my life. And I, I never knew that it didn't have to look like 80 hour work weeks that it actually could look more like learning how to rest, um, things like that. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Perseverance using that example, perseverance can show up in all different sorts of ways, but we're sort of programmed in this, like, you know, work hard, hustle, you know, boss babe society to think it only looks a certain way. So I love that. Exactly. What would you say is the most common misconception for your work in chronic illness? What would you say people either don't understand about it or they assume about it before stepping in and asking these questions? Yeah, I love that question um, because I would say that that probably has to do with the word acceptance, but I'll take a step back before I even get there. Um, Cause I think the question you asked earlier of for someone who doesn't even really understand chronic illness or just isn't in this world, um, I'm not quite sure what a misconception might be other than Actually, yeah. So if you don't really know anything at all about chronic illness, you might think that the work we're doing is trying to fix or resolve your chronic illness. So you're coming to see me to somehow fix it, but it's kind of confusing because it's like, wait, you're a therapist, not a doctor. And it's like, yes, exactly. So we're not trying to fix anything. We're not trying to cure anything. We're trying to learn how to do things like manage it, ex uh, practice acceptance, which I'll kind of get into because that has such a huge um, negative connotation with it. Um, and we're and, and build support systems in your life. Now, some of that work can be done as with working as a, a health coach. Um, this doesn't just have to be uh, through a therapist. Um, coaches are really, really great in helping people manage their medications, stay on top of their doctor appointments, um, learn time management, uh, things like that. So kind of the more like, um, goal oriented things. 
Um, whereas in therapy, we, we definitely do that too. Um, but that more therapeutic in-depth work is around grief, loss, acceptance, um, childhood trauma comes up a lot. Um, even just kind of childhood wounds, it doesn't have to be necessarily this huge trauma, but how were you wounded as a child? Um, and so after we kind of figure out where a client is, you know, are, are they looking for kind of just this like base level help on like getting their life, uh, organized, um, or leaning more into some of that, maybe the childhood wounds and things of that nature, acceptance comes up so much and acceptance is really really misunderstood because it sounds like you're supposed to just like fall over and accept things as they are and that's it couldn't be further from the truth um and so maybe the word acceptance just is a really bad misnomer um but acceptance is more about learning that whatever you are feeling about a particular experience is one 100 legitimate and two, does not have to dictate your next behavior. Um, that's kind of a tricky one too, because for example, if you're tired, uh, we need to learn how to accept like, my body is tired. And then we move into making sure that there's no judgment or criticism around that. And there are exercises we do and we practice that. That's not just, again, it's not just as simple as don't beat yourself up, talk to yourself better. That doesn't work for everyone. Um, and so we are accepting how we feel. We are acknowledging, okay, this is how it is. And while I wish it were different, it's not. So what am I going to do next? What do I want to focus on next? If I'm tired, I probably need some rest. So let me rest. And, and then eventually I can get up and do some of these other things that are important to me. But if I sit there resting and criticizing myself the whole time, and wishing that it were so different that I hate this experience. Like I hate that I have to lay on this couch and I hate that I have to be in bed right now or whatever that looks like for you. Then you're actually not mentally resting. You're physically resting, but mentally you're not. And therefore your body is still worked up. Your cortisol levels high, your you know, other hormones in your body are still high. This is where the mind body connection really comes in. Um, again, people talking about misperceptions, people think like, this work, if you have to see a therapist for a chronic illness, that means it's all in your head and that couldn't be further from the truth. That's why I work so hard to get my clients to work with other practitioners, functional medicine doctors, or even just a regular MD as well. Anything that we can do to, to bring the mind and the body together because it's not separate. Um, if you, again, this example of laying down in bed, if you're stressing the whole time your cortisol levels are high it's kind of like you just went for a run outside your body doesn't know the difference between high cortisol because you're running or high cortisol because you're laying in bed and I shouldn't say that so blanketly black and white um there is a there is a difference between running and laying in bed but your hormones again they they really do impact how we think, how we feel in our motivation levels and energy levels. And so if your cortisol is high the whole time you're resting, you're not, you're not doing yourself a good service. So those are some of the misconceptions. I think, um, when you start to really look into the, like, what does it mean to be a therapist who works with chronic illness? Uh, these are the things that come up for people. Um, yeah. 
No, yeah, that definitely, I think that you really summed up this word mindfulness in a way that is succinct, but also very, very deep. You know, I think oftentimes one rests and one thinks I'm doing a really bad job at not doing anything. Or, you know, I can hardly enjoy this because I'm worried about all the other things I need to be doing. So what's the point of even doing it at all? So if you were to work with someone who had those critical thoughts around resting, like you described, what would be the tactics or the practices that you would bring into your sessions to help them come to peace with that? Yeah, you know, it depends on the client, but some things that come to mind are sometimes it's important to give yourself that grace to say, okay, I'm trying to rest right now, but going back to acceptance, maybe you just can't, um, your body is wired, your mind is wired. So while you know, you need rest, otherwise you're going to be tired for tomorrow. If your body is in the state of fight or flight and you, you truly genuinely cannot get out of it, get up and go for a walk. It doesn't matter if it's midnight or get up and go do some dishes or listen to your body. Your body is telling you, I cannot lay in this bed anymore. If your mind is telling you, let's say on the flip side, you are really exhausted. You could go to sleep, but your mind is like, I got to do the dishes. I got to do this. If I don't do that, I'm going to be stressed later on. Then we're going to work a little bit more on like, how can we keep you in bed? Um, And so that's, that's why the body part of this is so important because we really, really get hung up on our thoughts and believing whatever our thoughts are telling us is important when our body is often trying to tell us a different story. So that's, wow. Yeah. You just, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, so that that's a little bit of where I might start. Yeah, no, you just completely blew my mind because you really took the concept of what rest looks like and flipped it in a total 180. And I, I'm, that's part of what you do, right. Is you help redefine rest for whatever looks best for that person, their body and where they're at. So I appreciate you taking the time to explain that because that's given me a whole new way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, that's probably one of my favorite parts of working within an acceptance and commitment framework, because I think so often we hear, we hear so many different um, pieces of advice and uh, even social media has a big part in this, like learn to rest, learn to, um, you know, there, there's equally the, an equal amount of messages out there about learning to rest and slow down as there are about like being productive and doing more. And I think we are always living in this like black and white, like do it all or do nothing. And, and both of those things are, both of those things are really hard. And so we really try to find what does it look like to be able to step on the accelerator and do a little bit more than what you're doing right now? if that's not serving you and then how do we learn to break as well so that you're not just going hundred miles an hour until you crash. And for people with chronic illness, that is incredibly important because we know that our energy resources are so limited and that we're going to crash regardless. We tend to just kind of hit the ground running and do as much as we can and ignore every symptom in our body because we know that the crash is coming and that we're going to be laid out on the couch for three days with a hurt back or a cold or chronic or this fatigue, achy fatigue feeling. Um, We know that that's coming. And so we try to get as much done as we can 
we have no idea how to break and we literally need our body to start like breaking down before we, before we give ourselves a break, which means we're never actually resting. We're recovering. And that's a completely different thing than choosing to rest and choosing, choosing to honor what your body needs before your body says, okay, we're crashing because we can't do it anymore. Gotcha. So a lot of, a lot of it is like striking the balance you would say. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, going back to like redefining what does balance look like for each individual in a way that's, that works for them and their lives, not, oh, well, like Instagram says balance looks like this. And I'm so glad that you brought up Instagram and social media in general, because mindfulness is such a big buzzword on all the platforms. Wellness is such a big buzzword on all the platforms that you know, it's, it's hard to not view it as like this unattainable nirvana that's never going to happen to us. Mm. So if you were to sort of summarize wellness in relationship to the work that you do, what would wellness look like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, the wellness industry is so, (laughs) there's so much wrong with it right now. I think it started off in a really good place. And right now it has a lot of, um, assumptions and more demands of people and an aesthetic that is highly unattainable. Um, so for me, wellness, wellness looks like being happy with your life. Um, that's a really simplistic way of putting it because no matter how I define it, it's going to need a a ton of elaboration. Um, Being happy with your life doesn't mean you are just happy, like, oh, just be happy or, um, you know, be thankful for what you've got. It doesn't mean that at all. It actually means, do I have pride in the work that I've done? Do I feel good about what I'm doing? Um, Am I working towards something that's meaningful to me? This is where the values piece comes in if you don't care about having a clean house, why put your energy into it? If you don't care about um, looking a certain way aesthetically, you know, going to the gym that requires you to go to the gym six days a week, why are you putting yourself, yourself, yourself through that? Um, and so living a life of wellness is when you have clearly defined what happiness actually looks like for you. And then you're putting one foot forward in front of the other to get there. So it's not about the destination. It's not like I've, I've decided what a happy life looks like. And now I'm here. It's I've decided what a happy life looks like for me. And every day I'm able to put one foot in front of the other. If you're constantly having obstacles to that happy life that you're looking for, it's time to either revisit that dream. And if that's actually relevant and necessary for you or look at your actions and and what you're doing or not doing to get there um so it can look completely different depending on who who's in it can look completely different um depending on your situation so yeah i hate to leave it without a, a real definition but happiness um a, a life of wellness really has to be defined by the client And so that's what we're constantly working on is, is having them define it and then work towards it. No, I think that you, you definitely define it in a way that again, answered the question, you know, it is basically wellness is subjective to you. 
and tying it back to what you mentioned about the values, the value identification, would you say that that works to help live a life that is a happy one? Definitely. I think um, with identifying your values, it can be as black and white as trying to remember, okay, perseverance is my top value. So every day I wake up and I do one thing in honor of that word and, and what that means to me. Um, but after a while, you no longer really need that list of words and, and you kind of just know what feels good in your body. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're working towards is how do you get to a point where you don't even have to think about your values anymore. You, your body knows what they are and your body will give you signs. And through reducing your self, your inner critic and having compassion for yourself and being more self-aware, um, that's how we get there. Those are the main core tenets, I think, of how we get there. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think it's, it's super important to understand, like you said, um, you summed it up best when you said that it looks different for everyone. So maybe on Instagram or social media, tying it back to that, we see sort of one subjective prototype of what wellness and happiness looks like to one crowd that maybe is adopted by the masses. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that you said, you know, it takes time to listen to your body because it is, it sounds like the work you do is, is so personal and helps sort of rewire individuals to understand that it's all about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And with that being said, um, just the part about it, it is all about yourself, but remember that we live in, uh, we are communal beings. And so what's important to you oftentimes will, you'll eventually learn when you kind of like find your people. Sometimes, sometimes your people is your family. And other times we have to you know find our tribe outside of our family. But what you'll learn is that as you continue developing who you are and what you like and what you don't like, and you're finding your people, you start to realize that the people around you have similar values as well. And what benefits you benefits the people around you and what benefits the people around you benefits you. And so I just want to put that caveat in there because um, when we start to talk about like doing what's best for you or self-care or allowing yourself to be selfish um, so that you can, you can live this happy life, that is important, but it's not, it's not selfish. It, it really should at the end of the day through this process feel like you are connecting with other people and connecting with people who really get you and you really get them and you do have um, similar interests, goals, and values. And that tends to happen naturally as you do this work. It's not something that you need to try to force into happening. That's a great segue to my next question, actually. You answered a lot of a lot of my my next point in there. The next thing I was going to ask is, you know, kind of a foil of what you just said, as you're identifying your values and you find those, whether it be in your work sphere or your personal sphere that don't align or don't value the same things that you do, how do you stand true to, to the work that you're doing? How do you mitigate that conflict? Yeah. Um, that can be really difficult sometimes. And within the acceptance and commitment framework, we, um, we, we lean on one principle called, well, there are six principles within the framework and all of these principles make up something called psychological flexibility. So it's just like, <clears throat> it's just like um, learning how to be more flexible in your body. We also have to learn how to be more flexible in our mind. 
So actually being around other people who have different values than you, have different ideas of what it means to be polite or rude, you know, what, what they, um, people who really do bring up a lot of conflict um, when you're around them. If we're learning how to be psychologically flexible, this is bi-directional. One, learning, learning how to be psychologically flexible allows you to be around them without as much distress, but also being around them is what helps teach you how to be flexible. So we don't, we don't learn how to be physically flexible or physically, physically strong by just doing, we learn by doing and failing or doing and struggling or doing and, um, reflecting and figuring out what we want to do differently. So if I have a value of perseverance or let's say my, my value is kindness and honesty. So let's say those are the top two values and I have a really difficult person I'm trying to deal with at work. I cannot control how they show up in the room. I can only, and I hate to say control, but I want to focus on my values in this moment. I want to make sure that I'm showing up with kindness and honesty, which means I'm also kind to myself. So I'm not just letting them talk rudely to me and, and, you know, because I'm a kind person, I'm not going to say anything. No, in fact, part of being kind and being kind to myself is assertively addressing that situation. Hey, we need to work together on this project. And when you talk to me that way, it makes it really difficult for me to do my job. How can we get through this together? So it's a little bit of learning how to have some assertiveness skills and some different ways of communicating, but it's also learning how to be okay with the fact that you cannot control someone else. So someone constantly has an attitude every morning. They walk into work every morning and they never say hi to you. They're just quiet. They're to themselves. And you find that really, really rude. It might have nothing to do with you at all, or it might be super personal. We don't know. Um, you know, maybe they, they really get triggered by you just as much as you get triggered by them. I'm not going to try to step in and try to control the fact that this person doesn't say hi to me, but what I am going to do is focus on, okay, what parts of my job do I need this person's cooperation in? And can we have a mutual understanding and respect there? And and then I'm going to try to figure out how to make that happen. Um, So psychological flexibility, I mean, it's, like I said, it's a little bit of learning how to be more flexible so you can show up in that way um, and not let your triggers control you. But it's also about allowing yourself to be in uncomfortable situations so that you can continue learning because we don't learn when everything is comfortable around us. We have to have some level of challenge and discomfort as humans. Yeah, I love that. It's so true. I mean, no one likes to be uncomfortable, right? Like we're taught from since the, such a young age to do whatever we can to dodge the discomfort. But I totally agree with you that growth happens in times that you are challenged or you are uncomfortable, just like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are really taught that if you if you're uncomfortable, you've done something wrong. Um, and people with chronic illness hear this all the time. Well, if you have achy joints, you know, you have arthritis, you need to make sure you're, you're eating 100% anti-inflammatory and you're doing the right exercises and you're doing this, you're doing that. There's always a message of what you need to be doing rather than 
how can we as a society come together and just help everyone? Um, some of these illnesses, it doesn't matter how clean you eat. Most of these illnesses, I should say, it does not matter what you're eating or, or how much you're moving. The pain doesn't go away. Uh, and so instead of looking at the individual and saying, well, what are you doing wrong? Why don't we look at our society and say, how do we actually support somebody who lives with this much pain? Um, so yeah, it, it gets, there's many layers here to this work. That dreaded phrase, you should, you have to, I think like there's so many times yeah. where people interject their opinion or the expertise they believe that have. And I'm sure being in a chronic illness sphere or situation, that's 10 times more frustrating when you've probably tried everything in the book already or taken the advice of all the professionals already. And then whoever, a coworker, a friend, a family member, a partner waltzes along and tries to emphasize with the pain that they can't really emphasize with. Exactly. Yeah. And just going back to community for a second, you know, when people try to give advice, but there's been no relationship built there, it's, it puts up all of our defensive walls. We really need to be in relationship with one another before we can truly hear what they have to say. And so part of this work really is about building healthy relationships that really work for you that are really connected rather than just, oh, well, like I trust this doctor because they know a lot or they, you know, they are really highly recommended. Yeah. But if they talk down to you, every time you see them, your, your body doesn't trust them and you're not going to take their advice and you're not going to do what they say, even if that advice actually would help you a bit. So once again, it's, it's not your fault. Uh, if you can't listen to advice, even that advice that you know might be really, really helpful for you. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're being inundated with it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One more question that is kind of burning in the back of my head. Um, what, what sort of area of research in the psychotherapy world are you most looking forward to or most intrigued by? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, there's so much to learn right now. Uh, something that I, I tend to spend a lot of time on is pain research and how um, psychological it can be. Um, there are, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of research happening right now around pain and your thoughts and your attitude. And, and I, be, I, I try to be really careful with that language because it's not about your thoughts creating your reality or your thoughts causing you pain but it's more about um, how you respond in your body, which going back to everything we've just talked about, it's not about trying to change that. It's about being aware of it so that you actually know what your body's doing rather than trying to change something that you actually don't even know a whole lot about because you haven't spent enough time observing it, even if it is in your own body. Um, and so that research is really uh, important and it's really interesting to me. Um, and just figuring out how, just continuing to figure out how this mind-body connection actually works um, and really continuing to dispel the myth that your thoughts create your reality, even if we are working a little bit with like your thoughts and what that means. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're learning so much every single day and there's a, a large, large team and school of thought that are backing up the idea that you just, that you just 
identified that it's so much more than what we know. And Mm -hmm. as we begin to learn more and more and more, like I've always said that therapists are eternal learners, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you are always looking out for what's next because it will change your work and morph your work to be more applicable. Yeah. Yeah. We are for sure. Lifelong learners. Um, and that's what keeps this work interesting. And my clients lived experiences help me learn that too. So, you know, to summarize, this podcast is all about bringing different therapists and other medical professionals, um, opinions and lived experiences and their experience with the research, bringing that onto the podcast so that people can really hear an array of different opinions, different, um, philosophies, different research that's out there, uh, so that they can decide for themselves. What do I want to learn next? What direction do I want to go into next? Because learning is really such a great way to help us um, take, take back control of living that life that we want to live. Beautiful. That was a gorgeous segue. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited to continue to hear the rest of this podcast and learn myself more and more about what professionals all over the country have to say in this area of expertise. And I really appreciate you including me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking these questions and, um, yeah, I look forward to putting more content out there. So thank you. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.